Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 41, Achilles and the Knot. It was the spring of 336 BC. Philip II of Macedon smiled a very broad smile. He had conquered Thrace and Thessaly. He had defeated the Athenians and their allies at the Battle of Chaeronea, and he had brought all of Greece under his control. Except Sparta, of course. Now it was time to take on the might of Persia. It's not entirely certain why Philip was so keen to invade Persia and defeat the Persian king. Maybe he wanted revenge for the Persian invasion of Greece 150 years earlier. Maybe he just fancied a good battle and some lovely conquering. Either way, the omens were good. The Persian king Artaxerxes III had been assassinated and replaced by Artaxerxes IV. The Persian leadership was in disarray. Philip assembled a huge army. Not only did it contain Macedonians, but also hoplites from every city in Greece. Except Sparta, of course. The first part of the invasion, thought Philip, would be easy. The king moved his massive army along the northern coast of the Aegean, ready to enter Ionia. Here, Philip expected that the Greek cities would welcome him with open arms, and readily help him to get rid of their Persian masters. He parked his advanced troops in Thrace and returned to Macedon to celebrate his daughter's wedding. It was a very excited Philip that arrived in Pella. He declared he was a very great king and that his statue would be carried along with the statues of the gods at the wedding procession. He would walk with the procession of the gods, dressed as the gods would be dressed. The proud father marched out, the great king among the gods. He strode along, upright and invincible, and was promptly murdered. The killer was a Macedonian called Pausanias. It is said that he had been offended by followers of Atalus, Philip's father-in-law. The great king of Macedon was dead, and the heir was a lad of twenty by the name of Alexander. Philip II of Macedon must go down in history as one of the greats. He was a master of diplomacy, a skilled planner, and a brilliant battle commander. In just twenty years he had taken Macedon from an insignificant little kingdom on the edge of Greece to the ruler of the whole Greek world. Except Sparta, of course. Philip's general, Antipater, arranged for the army to greet Alexander as king, so there would be no doubt who would rule. Alexander rewarded Antipater by making him commander of the army in Europe and the number two man in the kingdom. It wasn't going to be that straightforward everywhere, though. In Thrace and Illyria, the locals decided that there was a young man on the throne and it was time to rebel. So, rebel they did, and Alexander had to go and put down the revolts. While he was doing this, our old friend Demosthenes stood up in the assembly in Athens and denounced Alexander. He also announced that Alexander had actually been killed in Illyria. He declared it was time for the Greeks to rebel against these upstart Macedonians. The Athenians then voted to honour the man who had assassinated Philip. Big mistake. Athens rebelled... Thebes rebelled, Thessaly rebelled. Bigger mistake. The Thessalian troops had taken possession of Mount Ossa and were ready to launch an attack. Alexander ordered his forces to cut a stairway in the mountain. The Macedonians captured all of the enemy troops and Thessaly was returned to Macedonian control. The Thebans attacked the Macedonian garrison in the city. Alexander was informed and his army reached the city in record time. The Macedonian king was in no mood to be generous and merciful. He didn't just take Thebes, he completely destroyed it. 
everyone was either killed or sold into slavery. The city which had so recently been the leader of the Greek world was left as a burning ruin. Alexander then turned his attention to Athens. Just like his father had been, Alexander was lenient with Athens. He simply demanded ten prisoners and a renewal of the vows of the League of Corinth. He was not really interested in punishing the Athenians, and anyway, he needed their fleet in order to achieve his real aim. Alexander was going to finish what his father had started. Alexander was going to invade Persia. In order to understand how Alexander eventually achieved what he achieved, we have to look at what drove him forward and made him so determined to succeed. Philip had given him the best education a man could have, and allowed him to command armies at a very young age. There was, though, a rivalry between father and son that spurred Alexander to try to do even better than Philip had. After Philip died, Alexander wanted to achieve what Philip had set out to achieve, but he wanted his achievements to be bigger and better than his father's would have been. Alexander also had on his side that one thing that all great commanders need. He was lucky to be in the right place at the right time. He inherited a great army from a great man. Philip had made the Macedonian fighting force into a virtually invincible army. Philip had educated Alexander in warfare and strategy. But not only him, a number of the other children of Macedonian nobles had also been educated by Aristotle, and some of them had also become talented commanders. Among his classmates were two great friends of Alexander, Ptolemy and Leonatus, and then there were his best friend, a nobleman named Hephaestion. These men were around to support Alexander in his quests. The young king had a flair for theatrics. After his army crossed over the Hellespont in May 334 BC, in order to march on Persia, the king made a detour. The army found itself on the plains of Troy, outside the city over which the mythical heroes had supposedly fought over 900 years before. Alexander went to the traditional site of the grave of Achilles. Once there, he anointed it with oil and then ran around it naked. He then changed his armour for armour which had supposedly lain there since the Trojan War. Alexander created an image of himself as the new Achilles, with Hephaestion as his Patrocles. A new Superman had been born. Alexander marched into Asia. Like his father, he was extremely clever as well as being an excellent commander. He was also just as good at diplomacy. He knew he needed a good reason to invade Persia, and so he invented one. He wrote to the new king, Darius III, who had overthrown Artaxerxes IV. In his letter, he claimed he was invading in revenge for the Persians murdering his father, for encouraging the Greeks to revolt, and for Darius illegally taking the Persian throne. Now, this was a complete load of rubbish. Darius had not killed Philip, and he had not encouraged the Greek cities to rebel against Alexander. He may have taken the throne illegally, but that had nothing to do with Alexander. Still, it worked. Instead of Alexander being seen as an invader, this made him look like a freedom-loving hero. The satraps of Persia, who were closest to Alexander's army, were worried. They gathered together for a meeting to discuss how to fight back. Memnon of Rhodes strongly argued that they should burn all of the food and crops so that Alexander's army had nothing to live on. Then they could hide behind their walls and wait for the Greeks to get hungry and go home. Sadly for him, the other leaders disagreed and decided to fight. 
the Persian king made the terrible mistake of underestimating Alexander. He sat in his capital, Persepolis, over 2,500 miles away, and assumed the satraps would do their job and repel the invaders. The battle took place near the river Grancius. The Persian allies could not believe how Alexander dived in and fought from the front. The commander really did look like the new Achilles. He didn't bother to hide who he was. His white plume made dancing patterns as he flung himself into the battle. An axe came down on his head and split the helmet, even cutting his blonde curly hair. But Alexander hardly noticed. At the end of the Battle of Grancius, 22,000 Persians and their allies were dead. Alexander lost less than a 100. The victorious king sent the captured drinking vessels and robes back to his mother in Macedon. Despite being a fearless commander and fighter, he was a bit of a mummy's boy. He made no attempt to hide this. When one of his generals complained that he listened too much to his mother, he simply waved him away with the words, One tear from a mother is worth ten thousand of your complaints. He sent the captured shields back to Athens, just to show them that he was in charge and doing very well. He didn't want his absence to spur the Athenians to rebel again. With the shields he sent a note. It said, From Alexander, son of Philip, and from all the Greeks, except the Spartans. As he marched across Asia Minor, the cities fell to him one by one. Some simply invited him in. Others wanted to do deals. Alexander was happy to do deals. If a city wanted democracy, he gave them democracy. If they wanted a new strong leader, he gave them a new strong leader. All he asked was complete loyalty to him and to him alone. He always got it. Darius III was at last becoming concerned. He appointed Memnon of Rhodes as supreme commander of the forces in the west. Memnon gathered his armies at the city of Halicarnassus and set himself for a siege. He thought he'd be able to delay Alexander and kill loads of his men, giving time for Darius to raise a proper army. This is exactly what happened. The city fell, but many of Alexander's men were killed. In reality, the battle was a draw. The only battle Alexander fought that he didn't win convincingly. Alexander marched around the coast of Asia Minor, taking more cities. Pretty soon, he'd taken so many that the Aegean Sea was almost safe from Persian ships. They had no ports left to launch them from. The Macedonian forces then set about conquering the rest of Asia Minor. Alexander led his forces and attacked from the south. Parmenian led the rest of the forces and attacked from the west. Asia Minor fell. Reinforcements arrived to take the places of those killed at Halicarnassus. The general Antigonus was left as satrap in Fergia in Asia Minor, and Alexander marched on. Brimming over with success and confidence, Alexander took a little detour. He stopped off at the city of Gordium, because he knew the city contained an ancient challenge, and he wanted a go. In the city was an ox cart, which was tied to a post. The knot which tied the rope was incredibly complex and nobody had ever been able to untie it. There was a prophecy that whoever could loosen the Gordian knot would be lord of all Asia. Alexander strode over and looked at the knot. He tilted his head and stroked his chin in thought for a few seconds, after which he drew out his sword. He calmly walked over to the knot, swung his sword and cut it in half. Smiling to himself, the new Achilles walked away knowing that he would beat the Persians. The Macedonian army arrived in Tarsus 
in late summer of 333 BC. Whilst there, Alexander received good news and bad news. The good news was that the Greek mercenaries fighting for Persia in the Aegean Sea had been recalled. The Aegean was quiet. The bad news was that they had been recalled to Persia to join up with the other troops. Darius III was assembling the most enormous army imaginable. Communication was slow in the ancient world. Messages could only be sent by men on horseback. Because of this, there was some confusion as to where this enormous army was. There were reports it was being formed in Syria, then other reports it was in Babylon, and then that it was at Sochi. Alexander marched his forces towards that city, but found out he was in a very bad position. Darius had moved his huge force and was now marching south towards him. Alexander was trapped. There were no tricks he could play. His army of around 40,000 would have to fight the Persians, and there were over 100,000 of them. Alexander, though, was not worried. He'd got what he wanted. He was about to take on an army led by the king of Persia. The armies lined up to face each other near Issus. Alexander led his own cavalry on the right flank, and he placed his Thessalian allied cavalry on the left. Darius formed his line with his heavy cavalry concentrated next to the coast on his right, followed by his Greek mercenary phalanx. Next to the Greek phalanx, Darius spread his Persian infantry, the Cardaces, along the river where they threatened Alexander's right flank. Darius positioned himself in the centre with his best infantry and his royal cavalry guard. The fighting was savage, but the Macedonians were just too strong. The defences of King Darius were being annihilated, and the king was fighting from his chariot. Just when he least expected it, he came face to face with his enemy. Alexander had forced his way to the front in order to fight the king himself. Darius, knowing all was lost, fled from the battlefield. He left his camp and everything in it as he escaped. After the battle, a victorious but very tired Alexander, still covered with the filth of the battlefield, strode into Darius's tent. In it he found a great prize. Not only did he find treasure and a nice bath in the tent, cowering in the corner were the wife and children of Darius III of Persia. Alexander captured the king's family and took them prisoner. He proceeded to treat them very well giving them all the honours they should expect as a royal family. Parmenian travelled on to Damascus, where he seized the rest of Darius's treasure. The once mighty Persian Empire had been dealt a terrible blow. Previously, everyone had believed there were so many Persians and the army was so large, they could simply not be beaten. Alexander had shown that this was not so. City after city declared loyalty to Alexander until Darius III offered to split the empire with him. Alexander, though, was an all-or-nothing kind of guy, and he said no. Success after success followed, and the exploits of the king of Macedon became legendary. He laid siege to the city of Tyre in modern Lebanon. It was thought to be impregnable, but Alexander, after a patient siege of several months, took the city. After taking the nearby city of Gaza, he hauled Battis, the dead leader, out, and tied him to the back of his chariot. Then he dragged Battis behind the chariot, round and round the city, just as Achilles had done with poor Hector. Egypt welcomed Alexander. The Egyptians had never liked being part of the Persian Empire anyway, and they saw the king of Macedon as a hero. They made him their pharaoh. 
it was declared that Alexander was, in fact, the son of the Egyptian god Ammon. Very pleased, Alexander founded a new city at the mouth of the Nile. It was called, of course, Alexandria. Darius III tried to make peace with Alexander again, offering him riches beyond his wildest dreams. Alexander was not interested. He marched deeper and deeper into Persian territory, eventually crossing the Tigris River. Darius was waiting for him. This time the Persian king had done everything right. He had positioned troops carefully so that Alexander would have to follow the route which Darius wanted him to follow. Darius arranged his army on the plains outside the small village of Gargamela. The battlefield had been levelled to create space for his 200 scythed chariots, chariots with horrible knives sticking out from their wheels. Stakes, spikes and snares had been placed on either side of the plain that would prevent Alexander's cavalry from encircling the Persian army. His army was, yet again, twice the size of Alexander's. There are many accounts of the ferocity of the battle. The Macedonians had been specially trained to deal with the scythe chariots. First javelins were thrown at them. If any got through and charged at the infantry, then the first lines would step aside, opening a gap. The horse pulling the chariot would refuse to run into the spears in the front ranks and enter the gap. The rear ranks would then attack with their spears and the front ranks would encircle the chariot. The charioteers and their horses could then be killed easily. Towards the end of the battle, Alexander again came close enough to the Persian king to fight him. Again, though, Darius turned and fled. Again, the Macedonian victory was devastating. Alexander marched towards the Persian capital. As he progressed, the great cities of Persia all fell to him. Babylon, Susa and the rest all swore their allegiance to Alexander. In January 330 BC, he arrived at Persepolis. He found the Persian capital undefended and took it. He stayed for four months, celebrating the new year until, at a banquet, an Athenian woman suggested he should burn the city and she should be allowed to start the fire. Alexander, who had probably had too much wine at the banquet, agreed and the Persian capital was sacked. Darius III of Persia was killed by his own satrap, a man called Bessus. His body was found by Macedonian soldiers who reported the discovery to Alexander. Alexander went to see the dead king and took off the royal signet ring from his lifeless fingers. He allowed Darius III to have a proper royal funeral. Bessus tried to challenge Alexander's right to be ruler of Persia. He proclaimed himself king with the title Artaxerxes V. He was soon captured, tortured and then executed. Alexander, king of Macedon, was now ruler of Asia, just as the prophecy of the Gordian knot had said. He was only 26 years old. As he watched Persepolis burn, he began to think. He'd achieved his father's dream. What on earth was he going to do next? If you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to leave some feedback on iTunes or contact me by email at mythandhistory at gmail.com or via the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com You can also friend me on Facebook at Paul Vincent Myth and History. The first part of the Myths and History of Ancient Greece is available as a Kindle e-book entitled The Myths of Ancient Greece by Paul Vincent. You can find it in the Amazon store 
and the catalogue number is available on the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com. Next week, we will find out what Alexander the Great does next. Until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.